three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. I just, put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode fifteen. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about, well, just about everything, ranging from philosophy and dating to nutrition to fitness and more. This week, myself and my distinguished guest will be discussing some thought-provoking topics, including language. Why in the world should you take the time to learn another language, and how can knowing multiple languages shape your worldview? Dating. We'll be diving into relationships and answering questions like, why is the average age of marriage getting later and later in America? What are the most significant factors for determining if a relationship will last? And what are the love languages? And finally, movies. What are the films that everyone needs to see before they die? All that and so much more on this week's episode of... Nervous Habits. All right, guys, uh, as always, please uh, keep sending those emails to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. This week, I am joined by a uh, special guest. This is the fifth guest we've had here on Nervous Habits, um, Ian Crowther. Uh, Ian and I have been friends for about five years or so. Um, a little over that, yeah. Fifth guest for the fifth year. Uh, really, the whole time I've been in New York, Ian's been a, a constant, a buoy. Uh, and Ian has had the, the privilege or, or uh, you know, the, the dishonor of living with me for three of those years. So he gets to see a side of me that, that nobody else does. Ian, welcome to the show. And, and as my roommate, are there any interesting nervous habits that you want to share with our listeners that, you, that you've seen? Maybe singing Hamilton songs loudly while doing dishes? Oh, that's, no, that's, that's, the, you know, that's the, the great part about living with you. You, know? you never know what you're going to get each day. So, <laughs> you know, whether it's Hamilton or Taylor Swift I, or I, a very broad range of uh, I get my musical Brian's. talents that you have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 90s, 90s love ballads. Sometimes you'll hear. The, the, the walls are very thin here, so you can hear what I'm saying in the shower. Um, Ian, you know, as I said, it's, it's great to have you on here. Definitely long awaited. Um, let's let's kind of delve right into here. Into here. And so, when you first started learning these languages, whether it be German um, or Spanish, what you know, what what served as the motivator for you? What was driving you to keep perfecting it to get on that level of fluency? So, actually, one thing is, uh, in high school and middle school as well, I was required to take a language. I started with Spanish, and interestingly enough, actually. I didn't enjoy it whatsoever. I think it was one of my you know, least favorite subjects in school. Um, it was definitely the subject I did worse in. Um, I remember, you know, just not having any motivation to learn it. I didn't see the point of it. You know, every day you're speaking English. You know, we should be working on, you know, languages that we already know rather than, you know, trying to learn new languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but things really changed. So in my experience, uh, in college, I was required to take another language. I decided to take German. There wasn't a specific reason why. I think there's a little bit of overlap with uh, my international relations major. I wanted, you know, language that was important um, for the European Union. And I already tried Spanish, so I wanted to try my hand at something else. And then something just changed when I started to learn German. Uh, I don't know if I just engaged myself more in it, if I wanted to, you know, watch movies or be able to have conversations or be able to read news articles. Um, I just think once I realized, okay, you know, 
I got the language. I was able to, you know, know something that not everybody knows. Um, it really, really motivated me to to delve into it and and really keep up with continuing the language. And I think it's so funny that you know German of all the languages because I'm sure my listeners have this conception of German being like an angry language. And 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 we've talked about this where you know I feel like everything is punctuated with an exclamation point, like And I think I saw some meme. It was like. It was like how you say be careful in every language or something like that. And they had the German and the German was like had an exclamation point, but none of the other ones did. Right. You know what I'm right, talking about? Right. I think the most famous one, I think there's uh, it's how to say butterfly. And, you know, butterfly in English. OK, it sounds OK. But, you know, Italian, Spanish, French, Pepillon, all, these roman- French, yeah, Pepillon, yeah. It's a beautiful all these romantic languages. And then you have German, which is uh, Schmetterling. Schmetterling. Nobody actually says it like that, but uh, I, yeah, I really appreciate those names. You know, it's, they're funny. It's yeah, it's just funny, like the the cultural, maybe the American um, impression of what German is. But really interesting uh, hearing you speak about how when you first started learning the language, you just you had trouble getting your feet off the ground, learning like figuring out like how to drive yourself. Because to your point, we use English every day, but if you're not using German. Like, right. let's say you go to Germany, you go to Europe, you're immersing yourself in the culture. That's motivation. But if you're in America and you're diso- dissociated from it, it's hard to actually push yourself to, you know, use it every day. It really is. Um, and part of the reason why I think I developed a greater fluency in German was obviously I lived in Germany for a year. I did a, a year abroad and then after college, I ended up working in uh, Frankfurt. And so I think that really pushed me to, I mean, obviously if you're using it day to day, it kind of stays ingrained, you know, eventually you start dreaming in a language um, rather than, I feel like typically when you start a language, you're obviously thinking in your, your native tongue and then, you know, trying to translate it over. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually once you get to the point where you can just kind of, you know, think about random things in that language without first translating it. And that, that obviously helps, but to get to that level, it's really hard. It's really hard in America. I mean, like we were mentioning before, um, if you don't use it day to day, then then why really learn it? Um, and then even when we do travel, I mean, think about, you've been to Europe, everybody speaks English there. It's lingua yeah. franca. Any part of the world, it's, you know, if you know English, then you're kind of set. So yeah. I, I think there is that, that issue with actually having that motivation, but... Uh, it's, I think it's so amazing when you look at how Americans consider four languages. If you're an American and you go, you go abroad, you go to France or Spain or Italy, you think you're hot shit because you could speak two languages. Everyone in Europe, I don't know if this was your experience, everyone in Europe can speak two or three languages. Americans have this notion that you're, you're special, you're gifted because you know another language. But to your point, everyone speaks uh, English in, in Europe. Right, right, for the most part. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of my first observation. And, and the second thing I wanted to share with you is you mentioned that when you first learn a new language, you have to translate everything over in your head before you can speak. What I always find fascinating is when I encounter someone who can speak three or four languages, the first question I always ask them is, what language do you think in? What language do you dream in? Because in your heart of hearts, if you can speak, you know, uh, uh, we have friends who can speak six languages. If you can speak Spanish and Portuguese and Italian and French and English and German, what's the language that when you're, you have your internal stream of consciousness, your inner monologue, what's that language? Is it English? Is it Spanish? And I don't know if you can be considered fluent unless you can really think and carry that stream of consciousness in that language. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, no I agree. I think that's, that's what it makes it so difficult to achieve fluency. I mean, just being able to naturally think. Um, but I guess to your point, people who can speak five or six languages, I'm assuming that, 
you know, depends on the situation. Like, it depends on what memories they have associated with that language. Like, if you grow up speaking Italian in your household, then, you know, when you're at home or you're thinking at home, um, or thinking of home, rather, then you probably think Italian. But if you learn, mm -hmm. you know, English in college and you have some great memories of, you know, that time you studied abroad in England, then when you think about that, you probably think about it in English. So I think it's a lot of it, you know, relates back to memory and you know Absolutely. how we how we create those memories and what languages are involved in that so to your point then certain experiences would be crafted in certain like languages so you'd have like a, a if you're you know a, a second generation french person you'd have a french memory and then like an english memory in america right right i would i would assume so i mean i can't really speak too much personal experience i have a little bit of german i have some memories associated with german but i would say you know 26 years of my life have been like solely thought of in English. In English. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when I meet someone that can speak three or four languages, that is the most impressive thing to me. Like, you know, you meet someone that has a PhD, went to Oxford, um, went to McGill, went to Columbia. That's impressive that they took the time to devote to learning their craft and getting a degree. But to be able to be fluent in different methods of communication, that's mind-blowing. And, you know, being in New York, being in such a diverse city, uh, I've encountered lots of people who are, you know, second generation. Um, would that be first generation or second? If their parents, if their parents are from Israel, for example, right? So they're first generation. They would be. It depends on when they when they came over. Right, exactly. So I've encountered here, first so. generation people who, you know, will be totally cool talking in English, but then they'll pick up the phone and call their mom, and then this Hebrew comes out, or this Bulgarian, or this Russian, um, or Turkish, and it's. The, just the fact that these people have the ability to switch it on and off like that is remarkable. Right, right. And I think it, it, it delves into a lot of psychological thought as well. You know, people, and this is anecdotal, but, you know, it's said that people have different personalities when they speak a different language. Mm. I don't know too much about that. So so you're saying that when I when I kind of turn on the, the French-speaking person, like I, do you mean like unconsciously I'm giving off a, a different, like, vibe or... Well, there's that, and then there's also um, this thing called linguistic relativity. So it's the idea that depending on, you know, which language we speak and which language we think in, that changes our perception of the world around us. So uh, one example, and it's also known as the Sapir-Whorfian uh, hypothesis. Um, that was the initial linguist who had uh, posited this hypothesis. Uh, but what it is essentially is that, you know, different languages have different conceptions or words for time. They use different um, subjects for, depending on the, the genders. Um, like, for example, I know Spanish, French. Uh, does French use different genders? Yeah. German. They all use different genders. So if you're advertising profession, you know, you're specific to, okay, you know, this is a profession for somebody who is of this gender. We don't have something like that in English. Mm. Um, so just different differences in these languages. Um, the idea is that you know they, they change our worldview and how we you know, how we think about the world around us. So that's called linguistic relativity. Right, right. Yeah, that's real. I, I had never heard about that before. So is that is that inclusive of all languages? Are there languages that that don't subscribe to linguistic relativity? Or are you just saying on a general level, if you learn a language and you adopt that mindset, it's going to frame how you're looking at the world? I think it depends also a lot on how often you're using it. Like I know we were talking earlier about you know in which languages do we actually think in. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that's really the inner voice that's driving a lot of it, that, that changes your perception. I mean, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you, you know, you have a, uh, if you're bilingual, multilingual, 
it'd be interesting to, to consider, you know, as you're hearing our voices and, and thinking about that, how does the dialogue sound compared to if we were to speak in a different language? And what's interesting, I, I know we're kind of like going all over the place with the discussion, but what's interesting is there, with the rate of technology, I was reading that there might be an innovation. I'm sure you've heard about this. It's an earpiece where, I, I don't know the, the science of it, but it, when the audio comes in, instead of the audio being transduced into um, electrical impulses going to your brain, it's going to be the stimulus is going to be immediately translated to your native language. So let's say I speak English. I never have to learn another language because if I hear uh, Portuguese or Chinese or Japanese or, or whatever, it's going to c- come to me in English. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'd, I'd be impressed if they can perfect that technology. I think... Um on our phones, you know, you can use Google, Google Translate. Translate. It always comes out wrong. Because, <laughs> you know, think about in English, there's words have so many different meanings that to really infer it, you have to know the actual language. You can't just do a word for word translation. I mean, I think, yes, that we can eventually get to that point of technology, but, uh, you know, one of the things is there's so many subtleties about language that I, I really don't think that technology is going to capture anytime soon. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that when that technology comes about and we're able to – because, you know, it's you know it's inevitable. We're able to just have a, a device that can translate any language from any language. I think we're being robbed of, of certain benefits of learning a language. I'm just going to, you know, uh, go through a couple of them for you. Let me know if, if – if, if you agree or disagree, but uh, they, they've done extensive research at the Eton Institute on what the process of learning a foreign language actually does to your brain. Um, the first thing that it does, and, and I'm sure you know this, this is pretty much common sense, it improves your memory. Um, the part of your brain that's associated with, with memory, hippocampus, uh, very much the, the more that region is used, the more active it, it is, the better its functions work. So multilingual people have memory systems have limbic systems that are more exercised and quicker to recall names, directions, facts, figures, because they're using that hippocampus in order to remember a language. And I think you mentioned earlier, when you don't use a language, you lose it, much like any skill. I mean, if you you know, if you know play professional uh, baseball or football and then you just stop for 10 years and you try to pick it up again, yeah, you know, you'll have some basic abilities, but you're not, it's not going to be as refined. So that would be the first thing. Um, and another uh, you know, takeaway in terms of the benefits of learning a language, there was research done at the University of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, um, where they looked at uh, multilingual people slipping from one language system to another and how it abe- uh, affects their ability to function in their everyday life, and they found that it enhances their ability to multitask. So people who have developed the ability to think in different languages are able to move from one task to the other a little more efficiently than someone who only knows one language. So those are you know two uh, benefits I want to throw at you early on. Uh, it, you know, were, th- are, were you familiar with those? Are those, you know, th- things that you came across? Um, I think the, the largest thing to me that really jumped out was just, you know, the ability to keep people's memories, uh, to keep people, you know, on top of things. So I think they did a study related to uh, age and people who had known more than one language, you know, they were able to keep their, their memory skills at a higher level than those that, you know, only spoke one language. So I think it's definitely... You know, keeps your brain active. Uh, I'm sure there's there's more that actually goes into the science behind it, but uh, like anecdotally, I'd say yes, uh, I agree with with all those benefits. And and just to kind of add to that, uh, according to the uh, you know to the research done by the Etine Institute, for monolingual adults, the mean age for the first signs of dementia is 71.4 years old. For adults who speak two or more languages, the mean age for those uh, signs of dementia is 75.5. So there's almost a, a there's a four-year age difference um, between 
you know, when when you get dementia, when you don't, among people who learn a language. So to Ian's point, definitely sharpens your mind. Um, also allows you to enhance uh, your decision-making skills. So they looked at uh, studies from the University of Chicago and whether or not folks are more or less confident in their decision-making, um, the control group being uh, monolingual, the uh, experimental group being multilingual, and they found that folks who know two or more languages are more confident in their uh, decision-making. Um, in addition to that, uh, it increases your ability to network and to socialize with people. And th this is, again, very uh, commonsensical is, you know, if you go to a foreign country and you have four or five languages at your disposal, it, it, you know, it increases your ability to connect with people. Um, instead of, you know, going to a country and being very, very snooty and, and, you know, sticking to English, I know that I keep going back to France because that's like my basis of comparison, but um, it's seen as almost disrespectful if you don't make an attempt to use their language. Um, I'm sure that was your experience in Spain too and in South America um, and Germany is that, Learning the language and trying to converse opens up new, uh, you know, doors for connection that strengthen your relationships. Right. It definitely builds that human connection. I mean, even if you make an attempt and fail, people appreciate it. You know, it shows that, okay, you recognize that their culture, their language is important and that you want to, you know, also share that with them. Um, I will go back, though, to the case you were talking about how in France, you know, it's seen as disrespectful mm -hmm. to not speak the language. Um to some extent, in my experiences in Germany, especially, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to to actually try to speak German with people because people were so eager to use English. You know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. almost like the other. You know, they're trying to make a human connection with you, and they're trying to say, "Oh, you know, look at all this American culture that I digest." Yeah, it's it's you know, it kind of uh, it's who's trying to outcompete themselves by making references to, to somebody else's background. Um, I do say, I, I just, sorry to interrupt. I, I will say it's also relative. When I say that people in in France and, and Canada want you to use their language, sometimes they can be a little condescending about it. Um, where I just remember I was in Montreal uh, like seven eight years ago. And I, I walked into a restaurant. A lot of the restaurants there have uh, French or English sections. So you walk in and they say Francais or Anglais. And I said, uh, Francais, s'il vous plaît. Like, I'd like to, to stick to the French section. And the woman just grabbed me and said, oh, like, no problem at all. We'll, you know, we'll seat you at the English table. And it's just, I, I think in, in that regard, yes, it's respectful to use French, but they can also be a little bit patronizing in that, you know, saying like, oh, I can tell you're not a native speaker by how you're pronouncing it. I don't know if that's been your experience with other languages, but I think it, it can be like that with French uh, specifically. Right, right, no, it definitely can. Um, and I think there's kind of a balance between, you know, is it somebody saying, oh, it's just being condescending or are they more saying, you know, I want to be helpful. I realize, you know, I, I speak your language, that I can help you out. Like, yeah. Don't worry about it. You don't have to, to make this attempt. We can just communicate in a better better fashion. Um, I think one of the other points that you were, you were talking about earlier that, that jumped out to me was uh, the decision-making skills, decision-making abilities. Um, I think just learning another language, I'm not sure if this was related to people who had learned languages as, you know, a second language or if this was, you know, somebody had learned it from a younger age, but, you know, just trying to learn another language and putting yourself out there, you know, making those errors, you know, having people look, laugh at your accent or, you know, disregard you. I think that really kind of, yes, in the, the short term, it lowers your confidence, but being able to break through that really, really helps you um, be more confident in everyday life and just, I think, make decisions. Absolutely. So being able to cope with rejection, if you, exactly. if you like conquer some adversity, you know, you embarrass yourself, you don't pronounce something right, just getting up and trying again. Uh, two more benefits I want to mention uh, to you. Um, 
one more is that your native language is actually improved. So let's say you're you're an English person and you're trying to learn um, what's the language we haven't talked about. Uh, you're trying to learn Hungarian, um, which is it's funny actually. I was in Budapest um, with with uh, my friend Jeremy, who you know you heard from a couple episodes back, and we both remarked that the funny thing about Hungarian is every word has like thirty letters. Like ev- every word has like. 10 extra letters at the end, like A, E, Y, they just added in there. But let's say you were trying to learn Hungarian and you're learning the tenses. You're learning the uh, past, uh, the imperative tense, the subjective tense, uh, subjective tex, uh, tense, the um, past, future perfect, the conditional, all the tenses. By learning the tenses and what they mean, you begin to uh, finesse your own um, way of speaking in your native language because then suddenly you realize, wow, I could use the subjective te- uh, tense more. I could use the imperative more. Um, you know, I'm not... Uh, conjugating my verb correctly? Am I, you know, matching my subject with my predicate accurately? So that's definitely um, one more benefit I want to mention. And lastly, uh, you know, it makes you more employable. And this is, you know, this is just uh, pretty much, there's a ton of research to support this. The Eton Institute's Language Development and the Workforce Survey from a couple years back, they found that uh, 90% of um, clients surveyed uh, would prefer having a multilingual employee compared to a, a monolingual employee and considered it important to their organization. Even it's funny, you mentioned how we met at, at that law firm. Um, we were both employed probably in large part due to our language abilities. When we were hired, we took a language test and I think it does make you considered more of a marketable uh, you know, employee when you're on the job market. Right, definitely. I think um, you know, it jumps out on a resume. One of the things, you know, when people see that as well, they know that, or they can recognize that you've you've learned something from scratch, um, and that can be applicable to you know learning any subject matter. You know, being able to stick with certain things, being able to grasp uh, foreign concepts. Um, that's that, that really jumps out on on resumes, and I think people look for that in the job search. Uh, so actually, there isn't that much on this around. Okay, does bilingualism increase earnings. So they've done it for individuals who have, you know, grown up in two language households. Um, so say you're speaking English and Spanish. Uh, there's varying studies on that. Sometimes that can actually be somewhat detrimental if people aren't as marketable in the, the native language of the country. You know, if they're dividing um, their time between these two languages, maybe they haven't had enough time to, to learn one language as much as they should. Um, but in terms of learning a language, say, you know, going through school or just deciding to go on Duolingo and, <laughs> and uh, trying your hand at a new language, um, this study uh, found actually that wages are 2 to 3% higher for these individuals. Wow. So um, I think there's a couple components behind that. So, you know, if you do speak a second language, there's obviously more job opportunities. Uh, that are opened up to you, but uh, I think what, in my personal opinion, um, and the American Council of Foreign Language also did a study on this. Um, you know, just individuals who take thirty minutes of classes of foreign language three times a week, they show improved scores in math, they show improved scores in science, they show improved scores in English. So it really relates back to you know, it keeps your mind working, it keeps your mind active, and uh, keeps your ability to make connections with people uh, constant. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Just to play devil's advocate, though, Ian, I mean, you mentioned that, for example, um, people who learn multiple languages uh, potentially can earn 2 to 3 more per, uh, percent more in wages. You know, in in 
um, like empirical research, it's tough when you have correlation versus causation. Like if one thing is connected, you know, one thing increases, the other increases, does A cause B or, you know, is there a third variable? The, the difficult, difficult thing with that is it could very well be that folks who speak multiple languages come from higher house, you know, higher earning households, um, you know, are better educated overall. So there are other factors driving that income. You know what I mean? Just to kind of you know, play the the other side of it. I mean, I, I obviously agree that um, it's definitely important to invest in invest your time and energy into learning another language. Um, so I, I do want to pivot to um, one more thing or a couple more things with regards to uh, languages. So um, the term for someone who can speak multiple languages is a polyglot. Have you have you heard of that word? Maybe? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I've heard it come yeah, up before. Yeah. yeah you, well, I had never heard of it uh, prior to the research I did. And there was this one guy in particular. And I mentioned how impressive it is when someone could speak, you know, uh, three or four languages. This one guy's name is Ziad, Ziad uh, Fazah, Liberian-born Lebanese polyglot. And he currently holds the Guinness Book of World Records for speaking the most languages. Take a guess. How many languages do you think he can speak, uh, read and speak with a level of proficiency? Not fluency, but proficiency. Proficiency. So I think it's... Take a guess. Guinness Book of World Record. I'm going to go with... Somewhere in the 30s. That's what I would think, like 30, 35. Uh, this guy, Ziad Fazak, can speak 58 languages proficiently, oh, wow, okay. including Arabic, Polish, Thai, Urdu, and Norwegian. So we're not just talking English and the Romance languages. Arabic, Polish, Thai, Urdu, and Norwegian. I mean, just think about and, – and, and by the way, I just want to clarify the, the levels of, of fluency. So proficient, my understanding is proficient, you can hold the conversation, you can understand text, you can you know generate, you can speak – um, but you can't, you can't like, you know, listen to uh, a sixty-minute podcast or ra- and understand every word. Right. That's fluency, or, or you know, having the, the native understanding. But still, fifty-eight languages. I mean, how do you think he he was able to, you know, to to pick up all those? That, that's pretty remarkable. No, it definitely is remarkable. I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of overlap in languages. So actually, the the number of fifty-eight doesn't shock me. Um, I think, you know, this is. If you talk to people who are polyglots, you know, once they learn one Romance language, like once you learn French, you know, Spanish is easy, and then you know you can learn Catalan, and then you can learn Italian. So I think there's different uh, there's different groupings that you can learn that really that really make it easier to achieve that amount. But again, you were saying, I mean, the difference between Urdu and you know English, it's there's really not that much relation. So he he probably I the number one thing I think he did is probably just uh, you sought out other people to communicate with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and you know, to my listeners out there, I, I want I want to ask you a survey question: How many languages? Any any, and don't butt in because you probably research this. How many languages do you think are spoken in the world today? Just take a moment if you're listening and just think of a number in your head. You know, uh, any number. How many languages do you think are spoken in the world today? Ian, how many languages are spoken in the world today? I didn't look this up, but if I had to guess, I would say somewhere in the two thousand range. <laughs> I mean, 2,000 would be mind-blowing. 6,500 languages spoken in the world today. And some of those, actually, what's funny, 2,000 of those have fewer than 1,000 speakers. So let's say I I got 1,000 of my friends and we made up a language. And 1,000 people speak it, that can be on there. But just the fact that there's 6,500 languages. I mean, you know, you'd think, think, say for instance, you're not very well educated, you know, uh, and, and... you might just think, okay, like there's English, there's Spanish, there's Chinese, there's like ten languages, right? Like sixty five hundred. I mean, so so uh, probably like ninety five percent of these are are you know either on the way out or becoming le- you know less and less utile. I mean, what do you take away from that? Yeah, no, I think if you uh, 
if you look in 100 years, I'd be curious to see how many languages there are. I think it's going to be greatly reduced. I mean, if not by technology, uh, just by homogenization mm. in nations. I mean, you really have to learn, you know, the whatever language is spoken there. Like for German, for example, you go to Germany, you go to all different regions, they have different dialects uh, that less and less people are speaking. Now it's, you know, it's, it's standard high German that everybody has to learn in school. All of the media is consumed in that language. So I think... Um, if I had to guess, probably the majority of those languages probably either come from India or uh, Africa, Africa, like tri- tribes. Right, right. W- w- without verifying it, I would. I, I, I'm pretty sure um, that a lot of them are tribe, especially with a thousand years, like tribal languages in Africa, India as well. Um, so statistically, the top five uh, most spoken languages in the world. Uh, Mandarin Chinese, right. 1.2 billion. Spanish is two. I think when we were kids, English was two, no? No, so I, I'm, is this is a native language, right? Not- uh, these are the languages that are uh, considered the most spoken languages in the world. There's no there's no real uh, clarification. If it's na- I, I would assume it's native. So right, ma- right. Mandarin Chinese... English would be higher on there, if, if not, but okay. Mandarin Chinese, and then Spanish, English, Hindi, and Arabic. Obviously, that that's a, a great majority of... Of Asia, Chi- Mandarin, Chinese, Spanish, English, Hindi, and Arabic. And if you want to learn another language, what's the easiest language to learn, and what would be the most difficult? I mean, if you're coming from English, uh, I think any of the Romance languages. I would say uh, Spanish. Uh, you know, give German a try. To me, <laughs> and I'm gonna, you know, you know, try to convince people to learn German right now. But uh, I mean, for me, the the sentence structure mirrors English so much more. I think initially from hearing it, when you hear it, it doesn't sound as much like English. Um, but once you really get a grasp of how the grammar works, uh, you know, how certain words are formed, to me, that's the uh, a very similar language to English. But I, I've done some research on this as well. Um, I think Dutch is actually the one they're saying. The hardest or the easiest? The easiest. What? English native speaker. Yes, Dutch. Dutch I actually, I was in the Netherlands and I tried to learn Dutch on Duolingo. I, I think I, I got like five expressions and that's it. I gave up. Well, you got to keep with it, you know? That's that's the issue. You got to get back on Duolingo and try. But uh, I guess for Americans, I mean, Spanish. I think Spanish, you know, is, is the most prevalent in, in our day-to-day lives, um, you know, Languages adopt other languages, and I think in, you know, American English, we do adopt Spanish. So I, I, I would say, you know, if you wanted to try a language, you wanted to achieve the easiest language, for Americans, it's English, or Spanish, right? And the hardest one? The hardest one? Uh, I can't even start to think about that. I think there's... It would probably go to one of those, you know, African tribal languages. Really? I, I can't imagine. I think there's just such a, a difference in you know, how that language is formed, you couldn't even wrap your head around it. Um, I know people have issues with, with learning Chinese as well. Mandarin mm. is, is difficult just because there are, there, there's a completely different conception. It kind of relates back to that linguistic uh, relativity. Well, so it, it, you mentioned Mandarin. Um, Mandarin, just like, so if you look at Duolingo, and we keep going back to Duolingo. Duolingo is, is, is a platform. It's a website. It's an app that you can go on and learn from scratch. To, uh, you know, any language you can do. There's listening exercises where they read like a, a sentence and you have to type the translation. They show you pictures to learn the words. Um, and there's all these different components. And, and then you get like, you know, levels as you advance. You do like five minutes a day. Um, it's like that, what is it, like like 1% rule? You get 1% better every day until you're right, at 100. Right. Um, so... On Duolingo, the least common language that people speak worldwide, or the least common language that people are trying to learn amongst all the users, is Mandarin Chinese. Now, I think it's because a lot of the users are Western, and you know they're, they're learning the Romance languages. But 
I think that's a testament to how difficult it is. Um, and just to your point about how the Romance languages are all connected, there's no bridge to Mandarin. It's not like, you know, there's no cognate. The sentence structure is all different. Completely different characters as well. Um, I think that makes it that makes it difficult. Uh, you mean char- like like with the language? Like exactly. Not, it's not the Roman alphabet. It. Exactly. It's not the, the Roman alphabet. Um, I know like Russian can be difficult too because of that Cyrillic. You know, you're learning, not only are you learning a whole new language but you're also learning a whole new way to write like a written a written, written exactly this written component. and you mentioned the african languages might be hard to, to, to learn we got uh the major horn of africa languages are amharic oromo and somali i have not heard of any of those zulu i have heard of um exoso and africans uh so i'm not i'm not super super uh familiar with well, that maybe they need to add those to duolingo so i know yeah right i had to request swahili I, wouldn't it be cool if you knew Swahili if you walked into a restaurant and right. just started? Um, so, uh, Ian, you know, I, I know you wanted to speak about uh, re- really quickly how someone who, you know, we were fortunate. We learned languages in high schools and college. Our, our schools were offering it. Let's say your school didn't offer languages. Um, you know, what's the best method on, on either a daily basis or long term to adopt a new language, to choose which language you want? You know, what do you think? Right, no, so I think the uh, to, as a foundation, you can use websites like Duolingo. You can use websites like Babbel, uh, Rosetta Stone. Uh, those are really helpful for learning the basics of a language, learning the grammar structure, learning you know how to ask for things on a food menu. But they're only going to get you to a certain level. I think there's actually a New York Times article that came out recently. Um, they had one of their writers do a Duolingo language for 500 straight days. So that's really? a lot of points. On what Duolingo, language? Right? I forget which language they had chosen. Um, but by the end of it, you know, they had, they had achieved just a, a, a small proficiency in it. You know, it doesn't really escalate that to the next level. So I think really to achieve that, um, a couple of things you can do is really just, you know, seek out media in that language. Mm-hmm. Netflix is great for this. So Netflix, not only do they have foreign films, foreign TV shows, but, you know, you can watch How I Met Your Mother in, you know, French or, you know, just like TV shows that you've, you've seen before. You know, just put them on, put them on a different language. Um, Make sure the subtitles are available, and just you know, spend you know thirty minutes a day doing something like that. And uh, I mean, it, to really achieve fluency, though, you have to speak it on a daily basis to somebody. Mm-hmm. So either you know, seek out individuals in your city who are from that country who speak that language. Uh, I think online you can do Skype lessons with people, where mm-hmm. you just you know, each day they want to learn English, so you go on there, you teach them English, they teach you their language. Uh, having that communication and just using it day to day like i would say you know i haven't been using my german day to day and it's gotten a lot worse so you have to keep up with it there's also an app uh adding on to what you're saying there's also an app called wakey i think i mentioned it to you and wakey is kind of cool let's say you're like me and and you can't wake up every day and and you don't have a guy like ian to knock on your door um you can actually uh, like schedule a wake-up call from complete stranger and they just call you at 8 or 9 a.m and what ended up happening with this app is people were using it to practice their languages so instead of you know uh, tom in in amsterdam requesting a wake-up call tom would request 20 minutes of you know with an english speaker to to finesse his english um but to your point definitely rosetta stone skype lessons exposing yourself to media and all that um, and, and why don't we give our listeners a, a you know a ten second uh, German lesson, French lesson here? Um, how are we gonna say? Uh, I mean, w- w- what do we need? Let's say we walk into a restaurant or a cafe. Uh, I would like a glass of water. Can I have a glass of water? Hello, I get again a glass uh, a glass Wasser. Can can you can you like repeat that, sir? Like louder and more angrier. Hello, I get again a glass Wasser. 
Hello, namaste. Yeah, so uh, je voudrais un verre de l'eau. Uh, Pourrais-je uh, un, un verre, uh, un, un tasse de l'eau? Um, what about where are the toilets? Do you know where the bathrooms are? Uh, wo sind die Toiletten? Wo sind die Toiletten? <laughs> um, so angry. <laughs> oui, oui. In and then French is just, où est les toilettes? Or où est les toilettes? Or the the water closet, the WSO. So yeah, I mean it's it's uh you know it, it's definitely an investment. Um, that's really interesting. Five hundred days on Duolingo. And what's funny about Duolingo, and I've told you about this, is they like make it seem like you're you're fluent or you're proficient. Like when I learned Spanish, uh, you know, right before my trip, I like. I was on like level six or seven. I did it every day for a month. And it said like I was 30% fluent or 40% fluent in Spanish. And I was like, Ian, I can't even carry a conversation. Right, How am right. I 40% fluent? It's not a true representation of... Because they're showing... I mean, what's interesting about a language is it's, it's easier to translate from the foreign language than it is to produce. Meaning... It's easier to see a sentence in French and translate it in English than to just produce the French words. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it definitely is. Or to keep that, you know, have that stick in your memory is very difficult. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like. So, anyways, uh, I want to. I want to go to the next topic. Any, any final, final uh, thoughts on language? I know we've we've covered a lot so far. I mean, if anybody wants to uh, add me on Wakey and, and get woken <laughs> up in angry German, you know, feel free to do it. Send send emails to nervous nervous podcast, podcast at gmail.com gmail. com. If you yeah, want to get yeah. uh, if you want to get Ian to where's it? What, what, how do you say I want a glass of water? Ich hätte gern ein Glas Wasser. What about I, I want to wake up? Wake up! How do you say wake up? Ich möchte aufwachen. Ich möchte aufwachen. Wach auf! Wach auf! That'd be um, yeah, commanding commanding you to wake up. <laughs> so, um, so obviously, uh, you know, on this pod, spent a lot of time um, talking about dating. Uh, one of you know, one of the the um, co- the topics that I enjoyed the most. First, uh, you know, first segment that I did, episode three. We talked about how to meet people on and offline. Um, you know, the transactional nature uh, nature of, of dating on dating apps. Ian, I think you listened to episode three. I talked about op- option overload, how people strive to be satisficers rather than maximizers. Episode eleven, um, we talked about you know once you've met people, how should you structure a conversation and how should a first date look? What are some ideas of you know what you can do on a first date? And now, kind of continuing on the path uh, here for this segment, I want to you know have a conversation with Ian on relationships. On you know once you've met someone that you like, how do you maintain it? And you know. How do you uh, commit to getting married, to starting a life together? So we're gonna, you know, go through a couple of open-ended questions on relationships, and we're gonna see if we agree and disagree. Because Ian and I, um, you know, we we obviously have a great friendship, but we don't always see eye to eye on on relationships. We come from, you know, completely different perspectives. Um, so first question I want to ask you, uh, you know, just to jumpstart the conversation, um, and you know, give me uh, just a general a general answer. What do you think is the most important factor? in determining if a relationship between two people will last. Just kind of sit on that. What's the most important factor in determining if a relationship will last? So I think the big thing is just, you know, being able to visualize yourself with that person um, down the road, you know. Are there certain things that, that get you riled up about them? Are there certain things that, that they annoy you with on a constant basis? You know, I think that being able to meet compromise, I think compromise is a big thing for, uh, for long-term success. In relationships so uh, yeah yeah for me I would say you know just being able to say okay 
you know, yes, you know, there isn't going to be a perfect relationship. There are going to be certain things about people that, you know, you don't generally like. But right. can you, like, can you imagine yourself five to ten years longer than that, you know, being with them, doing mundane things? I think really just, you know, having that ability um, to imagine that and just, you know, being around somebody that, that makes you better, that makes you a better person. Um, I think a lot of relationships have issues with, you know, people kind of you know, fall into you know, fall into, you know, being being comfortable, you know? Mm. And they don't really push each other to, to, to do certain things. So, so uh, Ian, Ian gave me, like, three <laughs> three or four <laughs> most important factors, but it's fine. It's fine. We're, we're, we're going to cover all that. So so what I heard from you was um, com- uh, being able to compromise, being able to commit to a future, um, and, you know, always pushing yourself and being motivated, not, not getting complacent. I, I mean, for me, it's one word. I think it's timing. I think that everything in life, specifically in your romantic life, comes down to timing. I, I, and this is something I'm, I'm very you know, stubborn about. I feel that you can meet the love of your life when you're 17 years old, but if your passion for art takes you to California and her passion for medicine takes her to med school in Philadelphia, it's just not meant to be. Um, and the reason why I feel that way is I, I firmly believe in the expression right person, wrong time. Um, I think that you know, meet, when you meet people, friendships, relationships, it's all about proximity and convenience. And, you know, whether it be Barack Obama, you know, meeting Michelle in law school or, um, you know, pretty much name any and any public figure that happened to meet someone at a certain stage in your life. I think timing is the the, is the factor there. Um, do you do you disagree with that? I mean, just because you're putting the other factors uh, pretty it's, high up. It's, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like that's very centric to the age that we are right now. Yeah. You know. Well, by the way, he's uh, so, so you just turned 28. I just turned 20. Happy birthday! And I'm 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 a much younger 26. Going to be 27. And uh, actually, this is this will be the last episode before the. Uh, anyway, sorry. No, 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 no. So I was gonna say yes. I think um, you know. Proximity and timing are definitely important in relationships um, to have that beginning and to really develop, uh, be able to develop. Um, but I think, you know, if we're talking about long term success, yes, if you are, you know, a relationship isn't going to work if for 30 years people are on other, you know, sides of the, sides of the long-term world. Long term marriage, yeah. yeah long term, long distance, long term <laughs> marriage. I, that doesn't work. Um, but I, I don't think that's the most important. I disagree that that's like the one. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think, I think I'm biased for being the age that I'm, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about commitment and we're going to get to commitment later where if you're with the right person, um, you know, the success of the relationship is predicated on whether or not you can commit despite time and distance. Like if you meet someone, I, I think what you're trying to say is timing matters at first when you meet someone, but then after that other factors trumpet but what i'm saying is i think when you're with the right person you know it shouldn't have to be a battle or a struggle to 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 make sacrifices you shouldn't have to forfeit other things to you know to continue a relationship that's just not convenient based on where you based on the stage you're at in your life um you know i just think i i, I just feel that timing you know especially in your your 20s and 30s um, really is is the is the is the single characteristic that determines if you're going to settle down with someone or not. Um, so, you know, just to just kind of start our conversation as we're thinking uh, about how relationships and marriages progress. Uh, you know, th- the next thing here is Ian. It's been well documented that the divorce rate in the U.S. is fifty percent, and it's it's growing, um, and it's even higher for your first marriage. 
Why do you think that is? Is it something inherent in, you know, 20-year-olds? Is it something inherent in men or women um, that for some reason in America, relative to other countries, we just can't stay married? I think, so, I mean, it's kind of a twofold factor. Um, I think a big part about it is, you know, kind of American culture. I feel like, you know, American culture always sells us on the next and greatest Thing. And I think this goes back to episode three where you talk about Ooh, brownie exactly, points. Exactly, you know, I've been an avid listener listening. to uh, number one fan. Episode three, we talk about what? We talk about what is it, satisfying versus uh, maximizing. Maximizing. And I, I think American culture, in a lot of ways, you know, teaches us to maximize or yeah, maximize yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I, I think this contributes a lot to it. The divorce rate. Um, you know, you can also look to, you know, just changing culture in general. I think if you look back in history, the reason why there was a lower divorce rate is that, you know, people would stay in miserable relationships. You know, you had a, a single income household and, you know, somebody would have to stay with the other person because, you know, that's really, you know, how they lived. Absolutely. And we talked about, and, and you and I have talked about this um, offline, but the book Modern Romance by Aziz Ansari. Um, and essentially he talks about how years ago, which is exactly what you're saying, your parents would just marry you off for economic reasons. Because, right. you know, the if you have a, a son and, you know, your family is, is a low economic status, you're going to marry off the son to the daughter of, you know, nobility in order to reap the financial benefits. But now... What you're saying with option overload, um, definitely, you know, it's become people people want to make sure that they suss out all the options, and particularly for young people. And and this is why I respectfully disagree with what you said in the first answer. The first answer you said that when you meet the right person, you should commit to them, and then you know that's the determinant of whether or not you stay together. I think that the reason why first marriages don't work is because people are getting married, young people, before they understand what it really means to devote yourself to someone at that age. There's this concept. Have you heard of a starter marriage? I have not, but I'm assuming it's like a starter it's apartment a, or It's actually house. a term. Well, when I worked for the mayor, uh, I was like the youngest person in my office by 20 years, and they would talk about starter marriages all the time. And it's uh, it's ideally, the, the way it is, is it's like the, your first marriage is like your first child where you make all your mistakes and you know you you learn and then it doesn't work out and then the second marriage that's when everything's going to be hunky dory um and i think what's happening for young people is if they are deciding to settle down in their late 20s um they they're you know they're making the mistakes they're not you know they're not executing the the plan with due diligence and that's why the divorce rate for that demographic is a little bit higher what do you think of that right i mean i guess you could tie it back to the first question as well you know when people get into a certain relationship when they're this age, are they sacrificing certain things? And does that sacrifice create resentment? Like, say, for example, what, what do you have? A doctor in Philly and... The, it was it was an art student in California and a, a, and a doctor, doctor in, in Philly. Philly. And if, you know, the, the artist decided that, okay, you know, to be with this person, I'm going to, you know, quit my art career and, you know, just get an office job. And then they do that for 10 years and they realize what I've been doing with my life, you know, I resent this person because they made me make this sacrifice. Um, mm. But I think that's what compromise is important. You know, having the understanding of where the other person is coming from, um, you know, being able to realize that, you, you, you know, what's best for us right now in our 20s? And then being able to come to an agreement, okay, if we enact this plan, is it really the best for us? And then later on, can we 
you know, what is it going to look like? Absolutely. Did you see La La Land? Remind me. I, I actually did not see La La Land. Shit. Is that, is that can, one of the, the can, plot points? You, you can do, spoil do, it for me. Are you yeah. sure? Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going we're gonna to talk about movies in the third segment, but obviously everyone knows how I, I find that movie and TV references are a great way of, um, you know, embodying the point. And this perfectly encapsulates the ending to La La Land. Um, I'm very sorry, Ian. And if you haven't seen La La Land, please, you know, jump ahead 30 seconds. But essentially, Ryan Gosling's character... Um, has this dream of opening up a nightclub and Emma Stone's character has this dream of being a famous actress and they're both driven um, extremely you know, ambitious people who aren't willing to sacrifice their careers no matter how much they love each other in the end they, they aren't together they you know, end up pursuing their careers on diverging tracks um, and they both end up happy I mean, I, I don't have this question here but, it, but a very common question in these types of discussions Ian is, you know, is love enough for a relationship is love enough for ma- for marriage because some people think if you love someone you know you can make any relationship work i don't think so because i think that when you you know when you love someone sometimes what that means is letting go of the selfishness of wanting to be in a relationship with them if what's best for them takes them in another direction does that make sense right right no i, I agree actually with that um i think I mean, love is diff- difficult to quantify, too. I think uh, a lot of relationships, there'll be passion in the beginning, you know. But then later on, 10 years in, five years in, and this is what leads to divorce, is, you know, it's not the same relationship. I mean, I guess it's really, you know, how you build that foundation. Um, and I guess, you know, if you go back to timing, that is part of the foundation mm. as well. You know, having, you know, having this plan together. I think even though, you know, Today we view marriage as a, a fusion of it's a you know about love it's about commitment. I still think a lot of it does come down to you know convenience for economic purposes in some ways. And Sounds, if you have alignment, it's yeah. like and if you don't have alignment, um, that's going to cause issues and that's gonna that's going to cause you to resent the person. So I think you know if there is a relationship where you do truly love the person, um, I think you really need to be able to differentiate that feeling of resentment. If there is that feeling of resentment because you, you don't pursue your dream or if you choose to go a different down career path, um, I guess it's that recognition of, okay, you know, is this a result of a decision that I made? Mm. And the more you talk about convenience and timing, the more it sounds like I'm trying to, starting to convert you to my way of thinking. Um, so you mentioned a moment ago, you said that a relationship will evolve. It's not going to be the same intensity as it goes on. So there's this guy, Dr. Uh, John Gottman, very famous um, psychologist and kind of like a relationship expert. And he talks about how there's three stages of uh, relationship evolution. So there's the passionate stage the compassionate stage and the companionate stage. The passionate stage is the honeymoon period. It's, you know, the first uh, six months to year where there's just uh, cocktails of hormones flowing through your body where you're energized, where you're excited to see them. There's a lot of, you know, sexual chemistry. Um, and everyone knows, you know, the, the honeymoon phase, the passionate stage will fade. And the second stage is the compassion, compassionate stage where you learn to love the other person after the physical uh, biochemistry wears off and you learn to truly you know, love them for who they are um, and you, you, know, you begin to, uh, to develop an underlying uh, compassion for them. And finally, the last stage, which generally happens when you're with someone for decades, is called companionate. Uh, the companionate stage, and that's when you develop an enduring friendship with someone. Where maybe there's still romance, maybe there's still you know sexual chemistry, what, what have you, but it really becomes a strong, lifelong partnership and a friendship. So passionate at first, 
then compassionate, then companionship. Um, those are the three stages. One more thing I want to mention about Dr. John Gottman. Um, so we talked a lot about uh, the divorce rate. So this guy claims to be able to predict divorces with 90% accuracy. And you read the book Blink, right? I have not. Okay. I'm Gladwell? No. Yeah, well, it's, it's on the bookshelf. You can borrow whenever you want. Um, but essentially, he, he did this experiment um, in, uh, in his research, and Malcolm Gladwell quoted it in, in the book Blink, where he watched thousands of couples argue in his lab. And he was, he was able to predict with 90% accuracy based on the couples who would divorce and who wouldn't, which is incredibly mind-blowing. And he was able to do this by identifying specific negative communication patterns that predict divorce. So we called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And so when he would notice contempt, for example, which is the most destructive of the four horsemen, um, he would kind of jot it down. And contempt conveys, I'm better than you. I don't respect you. Um, and contempt was so destructive that couples who are contemptuous of each other are more likely to suffer from infectious illness than couples who are not contemptuous of each other. Um, treating others with disrespect and mocking them with sarcasm are forms of contempt as well as name-calling, mimicking. So Gottman looked at couples. He looked at a brief 10 to 15-minute interaction, Ian, and he was able to say who would divorce and who couldn't. So it goes to show you how, you know, really you can you can, um, you know, you can bring this down to a science, whether or not you can predict uh, compatibility and whether or not people can can divorce. Um, and I, I want to get your, your take on that before we move on to the next topic here. It really comes back to communication, right? Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, when I bring it back to languages as well, uh, you know, just having that, that open channel, I think a lot of relationships do fail. I mean, contempt makes sense to me. I know, you know, if, if you truly don't like the person for a certain reason, it's never going to work in the long term, even if it's a small thing. Even if, you know, they just do daily, they do, you have a small pet peeve, and they constantly do that pet peeve, mm. you know... You don't respect them. You're not going to like them in the long term. It's you know, those feelings are going to build up, and eventually it's going to come to a to an edge. And you you know it's the relationship's going to end. Mm -hmm. um, what were the other the other three? It was uh, well. So I mean, we talked about contempt, criticism, the, defensiveness, stonewalling. Contempt was the one that that was the, the worst, the largest but, driver. Okay. Yeah, criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling. And just to add to this, Ian, I want to get your take. Um, it's been well documented that the average age for getting married is getting later and later. We talked about the divorce rate. But now women used to get married in their 20s, early 20s, men in their mid-20s. In 2019, what do you think the average age is for women to get married? Or maybe maybe you, you looked it up. Maybe I, you, I've seen the statistic at some point. I think it's like 26 or 27. 27.1 for, for okay. women, 29.2 for men. So okay. Ian's got about a year. <laughs> um, but uh, so why do you think that is that in 2019, women and men are getting married much later than in decades past? It's a career. I mean, that's... I, I'm trying. I'm sure there's other factors as well, but uh, you know, people have to devote time to their career to be successful, right? And you know, seeing, you know, it's, it's harder to get into a relationship if you're if you're focused on your career. You know, if you have conflicting time, you have uh, conflicting interests. It, I think that really pushes it back. That's would be the largest factor, in my opinion. I would agree, and and we talked about before the option overload and and, and that culture where people are you know think, considering all you know all, all their the opportunities they have. Uh, certainly, there's no rush. There's no um, you know there's no urgency. Especially nowadays, a lot of uh, boyfriends and girlfriends will will live together. Um, boyfriends that just sounded kind of weird, didn't it? Uh, a, a lot of people in relationships <laughs> will live together before getting married as a way of like testing it. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like. I don't know. I don't know if you subscribe to this notion, but um, 
a lot, I mean, there's two sides, the school, two schools of thought. There's people who think that living together before getting married is a good idea because you get to see if a marriage would work. There's people who think it's a bad idea because then you, you end up not wanting to get married. You know, you hear about people who live together for 10 years and then end up breaking up. So where do you fall on, on those two schools of thought? I, I definitely fall on the, uh, the school of thought that people should live together. I think, you know, when you live together with somebody, you actually see all of their habits. You see their nervous habits. Plug! <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you see them kind of at their, their worst behavior. You have to see, you have to deal with them constantly. You know what I mean? That's what really pushes people to the edge. It's one thing, you know, if you see somebody a couple of times a week, in the context you're seeing them, you know, you're going out to dinner, you're going out on a date... You're not doing mundane things with them. And, mm. you know, that's really, of, of course it's going to be a great experience, you know? I mean, how many times have you gone out to dinner with somebody that you like and you had a bad time? You know, that's, that's very rare. But, you know, having to, you know, keep a house clean or, you know, dividing the chores or those things are what are going to cause strife between people, you know? Mm. I, I completely agree with you. Um, but I will say, you know, a lot of women out there will probably say, like, well, if I live with my boyfriend, then he's not going to want to, he was not going to want to marry me because why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? That kind of thought. Uh, thinking so i know uh, we actually still have a good amount to get through so this is this is going to end up being a, on the longer side of the nh episodes i want to talk to you about incompatibility um just in the context of maintaining relationships you know do you think that you can overcome incompatibility between two people let's say hypothetically you have two people who for one reason or the other are just not compatible Maybe the guy is addicted to junk food and sports and wants to spend his weekends on the couch watching college football, and the woman yearns for the finer things in life like botanical gardens and you know going to the Met. Can they make a long-term relationship work? Well, it depends on how they feel about you know how what type of time they want to spend with that person. I think if you know if they're you know say an introverted person who necessarily doesn't require the person in a significant relationship with one another to be with them constantly, then maybe that can work. You know, I think that's a very small percentage of people, I'd argue, that's very hard to find. You know, I mean, you're in a relationship with somebody because you want to spend time with them. But in, that's the only case I could think of where that would potentially work, you know? I think to some extent, you do kind of have to have that balance, though. You do kind of have to have other interests from that person. Mm. You know, I think if, if you're in a relationship with somebody, and I'm sure, again, this works for people, but... Uh, if you just do the same things together all the time, you know, eventually you're just gonna get sick of that person. I mean, oh yeah. No matter, no matter how much you like no matter how much you care about that person, no matter how much you love that person, it's like you need to have your own um, your own hobbies, your own interests. Like there needs to be that time where there is separation. And that it's funny you said that because that would probably be to get back to our first question on what's the most important factor. I think having separate identities is maybe number two. I think timing is one. I think separate identities is two for me, mm-hmm. just in terms of you know what relationships can endure and which can't. Because I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, if if you are just if you become like swallowed whole, like you know conjoined twins with the other person. You really, I mean, I don't know if you build a resentment or, or the rest of your life right. suffers. It's codependency, yeah. Yeah. Co- yeah. yeah. I mentioned on episode 13, uh, which Ian hasn't listened to, but we're talking about death. Um, Emerson said that at any, at any given moment, we are ready to reconstruct the world out of ourselves. And I think that people today have this mentality that everyone is disposable, um, be it friends or, or you know, loved ones, uh, romantic connections, and that has to do with the satisfying, maximizing thing that we've overcome. So uh, I think being able to um, c- commit to someone, to one person, 
is really, uh, you know, about overcoming incompatibilities. Because let's face it, I mean, everyone's going to be incompatible with someone else right. at some point or other. It's, it's definitely context dependent. I alluded to love languages. Uh, so I thought it might be fun to kind of go through these. The idea behind the love languages is that everyone has needs in a relationship and a relationship will succeed or fail depending on the degree to which those needs are fulfilled. So the five love languages are acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, and gift giving. So you take the test on fivelovelanguages.com and you, and then it kind of ranks what are your greatest needs in a relationship. Acts of service is just, you know, uh, if you prioritize um, your partner doing kind things for you, like doing your laundry or giving you a massage. Words of affirmation is if someone, you know, if you like when someone tells you like, I love you or gives you a compliment. Physical touch is physical touch. Quality time, you enjoy spending time with the person. And gift giving is your materialist. Um, so it's kind of embarrassing if, if that is you. So do you, number one, do you believe in the love languages? Uh, and then do you want to share your ranking with our listeners? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do. I think um, this goes back to compatibility as well. I think the largest thing about the love languages, um, I mean, is identifying who your significant other is based on that. I think the biggest incompatibility is if somebody, you know, if they don't have the same love language listed low in their rankings. Like say for example, if somebody has gift giving as their lowest, but then the other person has it as their third or second even. I mean, mm. at the first, I think that's extremely incompatible. That person never... sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I think that's like the biggest. I mean, you can kind of use these love languages to guide incompatibility. I mean, it's at a very high level, but uh, I think they are helpful in determining. You know, okay, if I don't care about gifts, I don't understand why you care about gifts, and you know, you love gifts then it's not going to work. I think that's, it's just, it's going to be bleed incompatibility. Um, I guess my personal rankings, actually, let's take a look. First one would be quality time. Um, I'm a person who, you know, I really want to spend time with you. I'm not, you know, overbearing, but, uh, you know, just being able to have good memories with people and is the most important thing to me in a relationship. Um, the second one I would say is acts of service. I think that just shows that you, you care and respect that person if you're willing to do something for them. Um, my third would be uh, physical touch. I think that's important in, in a relationship for, for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, the fourth would be words of affirmation. I think, again, that goes back to respect. And if you couldn't allude to this earlier, uh, gift giving is, is the lowest on mine. I, I'm, I'm not only horrible at, at coming up and providing gifts, I just, to me, it, it comes off as a little bit materialistic. I'm sure um, I, I see why certain people, you know, see, oh, it's, you, you value me, you know, you're willing to, you know, part with something and, and give it to me and that shows that you, that you truly care about me. But uh, for me, it, it, it doesn't do it. It's, it's I, you could buy me, you know, a house. I'd, I'd probably, you know, care about you after. <laughs> no, I, 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 I agree with you. I think, I think we're on the same page in the importance of love languages. Like you said, I mean, if, if someone has quality time as their most important love language, you know, it's important that the, their partner knows that because then you can, you know, spend a whole day with them as opposed to if they have, you know, uh, gift giving, like you said, maybe they appreciate something, you know, a thoughtful uh, gesture. So for me, and by the way, just so you know, the love languages change. They could change. Just like if you take the Myers-Briggs personality test, it could okay. change. Generally, you know, it's not going to fluctuate that much. But if you take it when you're 16, you take it when you're 26, it might be a little different. Um, so for me, my most important 
is a tie the last time I took it between quality time, like Ian said, really important, and words of affirmation. Uh, I, I enjoy getting compliments and <laughs> I mean you knew that. Like I, having yeah, yeah, having that. the kind thing said about me that's that always like makes me happy. If I have like a close friend, if someone like says like once in a while, like, hey man, like I, I value you. That's really important to me. Um and then the other three are like, man, acts of service, I agree with you. It's cool if someone like cooks for me. Like for example, that's a great act of service. Yeah, yeah, uh or you know, does something kind, and then physical touch. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a dude. Like, I'm a person. Like, obviously, <laughs> obviously, like, I, I, physical touch is important. Um, probably, like, yeah, words of f and quality time are like up high. Uh, acts of service is like acts of service and physical touch. There's like a gap, and then gift giving is way at the bottom. I'm like, I'm like you. I, you know, I, I don't even like. My sisters can tell you. My family can tell you. I don't like getting gifts. I like giving gifts more than receiving gifts. Right. Right. Um. So. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're in a relationship or you're dating someone, I know it sounds silly, but take the quiz. Just see if you're on the same page. Loves of la- love languages are becoming more canon. I feel like when I uh, – Holly, you know, my sister showed them to me a long time ago, like 10 years ago, and no one knew what it was. But now, I don't even think I told you about it. I think you heard of it from someone else. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely – I mean, you can probably go on like BuzzFeed probably has a version of it. Like, It's like a popular internet thing, you know. I think the same with the Brad, uh, Myers-Briggs test as well. Mm. You know, 10 years ago, that wasn't as – as big of a uh, or as widely you know spread of a, a test, but I feel like now everybody knows. It. You know, you just go up to somebody randomly and you just what's ask your them, love language? yeah, exactly. What's your love language? What's your your Myers Briggs uh, classification? It's like it's becoming part of our culture to, to find these. Absolutely, and fun fact: I, I haven't shared too many dating horror stories with you, but I actually had a girl break up with me because I made her take the love languages quiz. I'll tell you about that. I'll tell you who, although you, you know you might. Uh, Essentially, um, we talked about language. English wasn't her first language, and we were hanging out, and I just pinned her down. I was like, I need to know your love languages now. And she was like, what? This is weird. So I made her take the test, um, and it, it didn't work out. Which uh, love language did she have? Uh, I don't think she completed it, but I think it was like the worst ones. It was like physical touch and <laughs> gift giving. And Ian has a girlfriend, guys. Um, I want to, uh, unfortunately, he's off the market, ladies. Uh, I don't know if, Mar- if your girlfriend has taken the love languages quiz, but I'm curious if, if hers are the same as yours. Yeah, yeah, she has actually. Um, I think the largest one that she had was acts of service, uh, okay. followed by quality time. Um, and then after that, I forget, I want to say it was words of affirmation, physical touch, and then gift giving was the lowest on hers as well. I'm always shocked when someone takes it and it's like gift giving, because they give you a number. It's like 10, 10 is the highest one's lowest. I'm always shocked because I've definitely seen people's like gift giving 10 and everything else is like a two. Like what? Um, all right. Two more things I want to mention on dating before we go to the, the movie segment. So, you know, there a lot's been written, a lot's been said, uh, about gender issues in relationships, particularly amongst young people. Women have a biological clock, so to speak. You know, a, a girl has to be very uh, vigilant about, um, you know, not wasting time with, uh, you know, with dating once she gets to be a certain age. Men obviously can, um, you know, can have children much later in life. For this reason, typically women tend to marry older, uh, you know, older men because of the, you know, how men and women are timing, uh, you know, their, their relationships differently. Excuse me. So my question for you is, do you believe a relationship can work if, you know, the man and the woman are the same age? And then the second question is, on a fundamental level, do you think that men have a problem with commitment? I know those are very heavy. So does the man always need to be older is, is the first question. And then kind of going off of that, do, do you believe most men have, a tr- have trouble committing? It's a good question. I mean, in most cases... I mean, I think the reason why men are older in, in many of their relationships, um, men mature later on in life. Um, 
And also, a lot of it probably has to do with, uh, you know, attraction as well. I think, you know, what... I think there's been studies done on this, but, you know, what women equate... I mean, this is obviously speaking in very broad terms to attraction. You know, they see you know, status as, a, as something that's attractive. Status, wealth, um, gift-giving. No, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I think men, uh, you know, have more of a, uh, a physical attraction is something that they're they're more interested in. So it makes sense that you know men are attracted to younger women and that women are attracted to older men. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you. It's it's very hard to generalize because when you generalize, you end up offending people. Right, <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah, but it's very broad I, terms I, that we're speaking. I, in. Obviously, you guys know on this podcast, I'm very opinionated, and you know we talked about political correctness on the last episode. You're going to enjoy that one. Um, so I'm not going to beat around the bush. I think that on a biological Physiological, physiological level, no matter how you know unique your uh, psychological programming is, your personality, your you know life experiences are. I think that as a man, you know, Ian mentioned men mature later. Just men and women are on different races. You know, at the carnival where you're shooting the water gun and, and, and you have like the cars are running. You know what I'm talking about? You're shooting the gun and the water gun. And the cars are racing. It. Women are always gonna finish. <laughs> Women are always going to get to the end of the um, of the the water gun race before the man because I, there's something evolutionarily um, in that you know in, in in the biological timing. So I think for that reason, the relationships that are most successful tend to be the ones where there is an age difference. Um, and I actually didn't do research on this, but it's always interesting to ask your friends you know about their parents and the age difference. For me, my dad is two years older. That's a smaller age difference. What about what about for uh, for Susan and Bruce? My mom, uh, Mark. Mark. Who's, who's Bruce? Bruce? I have an Uncle Bruce. Um, Uncle Bruce, maybe. <laughs> Susan and Mark. Susan and Mark are, are my parents. Uh, my mom's four years older. Okay, wow. The exception to the rule. But I think part of that has to do with, again, if you want to go to timing, they met later on in life. So when they had first started dating, they were in their 30s. I think at that point, you know, there's... You know that that age difference doesn't make as much of a difference. Mm, in that's interesting. Yourself. I feel like if you if you start out in a relationship and if you're in your early twenties, you know, four years, especially having you know a, a partner who's four years older than you, it's it's completely different than somebody who's you know thirty two and thirty six. You're at the same stage in life. See, that's interesting to me because if you're in high school, I'm sure you knew you know a fifteen year old in high school dated a twenty two year old. I was like, that's gross. That's a seven year age difference. But then, you know, when you're 35 and you're dating a 42-year-old, that's totally normal. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, um, so so what you're saying is there's almost like diminishing returns. I don't know if that's the right applicability. Yeah, yeah, but that's, yeah, that general concept that it, it, it makes less of a difference. I think the, the gender disparity, I'd be interested to see, you know, people who do get married in their 30s, what is the age difference? It's probably much less than it is in, uh, or a larger age difference. The gap is probably larger than it is for people who get married younger so this would be interesting if i have any earnest listeners out there who want to want to do some research on the success rate uh or you know the the divorce rate the marriage rate whatever for people who have the greatest age differences compared to the fewest i'm sure there's been research done there so feel free to email nervous at gmail.com on that and the second you know part of the question with whether or not men have trouble with commitment i mean we could do a whole episode on this in short um i think that i think that given the nuances of maximizing culture and society both genders today have problems with commitment but i still kind of i'm gonna rest on my laurels here i think that we're waiting until men grow out of it into that stage of life which is why i don't feel like a man who gets married at 22 or 23 is, is ready because he has to overcome that problem with commitment so i do think that on a fundamental level you know men are going to wrestle with that until a certain point
Right now, I can see that. I think, I think it's an age difference thing too. I wouldn't be surprised actually if, in younger ages, women are less likely to commit than men. But mm. as time goes on, men like I think the the common trope is you know the middle aged like father who you know cheats on his wife with someone younger, with somebody younger. Shiny. That's, a, that's like a common trope, but I think that also goes back to how, you know what we're talking about: what's attractive to the other sex. And I think, you know, when women are younger, you know, they're, they're at their peak attraction. And something that's more likely to lead to commitment issues, you know? If you're, if you're walking around and, you know, there are a lot of people attracted to you, then, you know, you're, you're less likely to commit, you know? You just have, you have more options. Where, I th- as I think, you know, older men, again, have that, st- that status allotted to them. So I would say, you know, that's probably the case. Um, overall, I would say, yes, men are, are probably less likely to have... Are more likely to have commitment issues, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if women at a younger age were at the same level or, you know, just below. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This, this, this is one of my favorite quotes on the topic. Have you heard this before? It's Albert Einstein. He said, uh, men marry women with the hope that they will never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will. Invariably, they are both disappointed. <laughs> um, to your point, uh, I, I think you're right. On the whole, again, hard to generalize, men value, you know, the the superficiality the the looks and the w- women are more um inclined to value status uh that's just something that's been ingrained over generations um and you know we can we can speak about this all day and i'm sure this is something that listeners have uh, opinions on so definitely write in uh to nervous habits podcast at gmail.com last uh you know point on the on the dating segment here you and i both love the show black mirror and i think black mirror you can find a Black Mirror episode that um, you know resonates with any topic. I want to talk about Hang the DJ. And Ian, why don't you, if you haven't seen Black Mirror, why don't you share with our listeners what the, the Hang the DJ episode was about? So the Hang the DJ episode, it involves, um, it follows this character, these two characters who are in this society where you, you're paired off into relationships, but you know... When how long that relationship is going to last? So say for example, Ricky and I were entering a relationship right now. What is it? They look at a watch. I forget. Like something. They receive an email saying you will be in this relationship for. They, they have like four a months. a pod. They have like uh, a okay. like it's like an, an iPad, and the iPad tells them. Right, right. So I think it's. I mean, I don't want to ruin the the end for people who will watch it, but it really delves into. You know, what does it mean to be in a relationship? What do you learn from your relationships? Um, you know, how do you really use that to discover yourself and, you know, what you're really looking for in somebody else? And, you know, what are society's expectations? I think that's a big thing, too, it touches upon. Exactly. And, and what I liked about the episode is it, it essentially brings this, the notion of an expiration date on relationships Make, like removes the the stigma from it that you know makes it no longer taboo because today when you're dating when you're single everyone you meet you know you kind of delude yourself into thinking oh this could be the one even if you know you're incompatible we've talked about or even if you want different things you're at different stages in your life the timing isn't right you know you think oh this is gonna be one but with the expiration date in this world that ian spoke about the, the whole idea is when you sit down at the table with someone for that first date, you both look at look at the, the pod, and the pod will tell you 24 hours. That's how long you know you guys are going to be uh, together. It'll tell you a year. It'll tell you five years. Um, and if it's 24 hours, then you know it's just going to be a fling. You're just going to you know have a one-night stand. If it's a year, you know it's going to be a short-term relationship that's going to teach you something. 
If it's five years, I mean, that's difficult because if you know that a relationship is going to be five years, that's almost the worst thing of all because you have to allow yourself to, to love and connect with someone but not, not let yourself be completely vulnerable and helpless because you're not going to be you know they're not going to be your your person right you're going to you push them away exactly yeah, you, you already know there's an expiration date to it um and and what's what's scary and the episode touches on this is what happens when you're stuck with someone for a year or five years that you can't stand this one woman in the episode the, the one of the protagonists was with this guy who had this annoying tick he would always take a sip of water and go <sighs> you remember yeah, yeah. <sighs> i've seen that like three times and um and she's just lying in bed and she's like oh i can't take it anymore but she's stuck with him the the system i forget what it's called the society forces them to stay and no matter what you have to stick together even if you can't stand each other if you have that bubbling resentment so the question is would this be a better society than what we have now because you have the the pro which is you know the honesty the transparency and expectations you know how long it's gonna last and the con is what if you're stuck with someone you don't like, or what if you know you're with someone for five years and, and you have to let go? It's a good question. I mean, it's like say for example, if you got somebody for the rest of your life, but you hated them. Like I, I'm like wondering, like you know what, like how is this society going to make that determination? Like I, you know, I, we talk about technology. Is there some algorithm that says, oh, you know, you're going to be like this likely to be in a relationship with somebody? Um, and I guess we kind of have that to some extent. We're moving towards that. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, today if like using the social uh, dating apps, you know, Tinder, you know, when are they going to start having, you know, certain questions? I know they already have chemistry for Match.com. They have certain things like that. They try to, to come up with algorithms that work. I mean, we're kind of moving towards that direction, you know? We're trying to make it so that we know we're making the most rational decision. But then I think, you know, and I feel like the episode touches upon this too, rationality doesn't doesn't really work that well with love and passion. It's almost like counterintuitive. So, you know, how can you how can you come up with, you know, a number that you'd be in a relationship with somebody? Like love defies oh, yeah. rationality. Right, yeah. So the system the, the whole premise of the episode is the system's never wrong. The system's never wrong. But what you're saying is love isn't something that you can program in an algorithm and it'll tell you your perfect match. Love is something that's organic and elusive. Um, and the other problem with this system is what about divorce? What happens if you meet the right person but you're like, yeah, I'm not feeling it after a year or two? Because in the episode, there was no such thing as divorce. You were stuck together. You, you ended up leaving the, the village once you're with your perfect person. So that would be another, another pitfall for sure. Yeah, well, I think we have that in our society today. I mean, think about how many people stay in relationships for our same marriages, whether, you know, it's for the kids or for cultural reasons. Mm. You know, it's like there is... There is that component still to the relationship today. I mean, I don't think by, you know, determining, you know, I guess this goes to what, like predetermination and, you know, what, what your life will. is going to be like. Yeah, yeah. Free will. Yeah, actually, another episode that, that was discussed on Nervous Habits. Um, yeah, it ties back into that. And it, it raises a good question. You know, maybe we are kind of living in a society today where we, we have those, those certain expectations of us. I just, of them. I, I think that, I do think this is the future. I think that, when you look at how dating apps have evolved, I mean, they have, you mentioned Match.com, OkCupid, Hinge, where they ask you 100 questions and they want to set you over the I think in the future, they're going to have something like this. It's going to be marketed as like, you know, 100% rate of success, whatever it is. But I just don't think that those relationships are going to be as long lasting and as fruitful as ones that are more organic, which we've touched on. 
many times before. So this has been a really long segment on dating. Um, any final takeaways? I know we 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 spanned a lot before we moved to the movies. And they spend, before, before yeah, the yeah. I mean, I think you know. Thinking back to your 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 point around timing, the first you know, question. I'm, yeah, I'm starting to be convinced. It's coming around. It's, we didn't even plan this out. We now we know it's going to change. You know, we ended with the discussion of Black Mirror, and you know that that draws into the timing as well. You know, um, be, be, I guess it's something yeah. you don't want to attribute to. You know, I think that goes free will. You know, like where you are in your life, like can you change your circumstances? And I think why we push back against that idea of timing is that we don't want to we don't want to admit that you know we're we're kind of driven by you know our biological clocks i'm not talking the sense of you know like being able to have a baby but just like life in general Mm. you know it's like what do you want to achieve in your life you know you have to fit it into this very defined time frame. well it's not defined you don't know when you're going to pass away but you know it's it's into this idea what we have as a defined time frame so Mm. i think you know I guess yeah, and your timing timing does definitely play play a large role in success. And speaking of timing, Ian, uh, I I do want to kind of breeze through our, our segment quickly on movies. You know, everyone knows that listens that I, I'm a, a huge movie aficionado. Given a choice between movies or TV shows, I would always rather immerse myself in a movie. TV shows, he's shaking his head, but TV shows require commitment, having to learn characters, get invested in storylines. That's why I haven't started Game of Thrones. Movies are a great way for you to escape from your day and live in another world for a two-hour window. You, you, you disagree? I disagree uh, wholeheartedly. <laughs> um, I think TV shows allow you to really delve into like the psyche of characters. There's a lot of world building involved in TV shows. That's my favorite thing about TV shows. Like I feel mm-hmm. like in a movie, if you have a two-hour movie, you can't, you know, you can't create this world. You kind of have to like hurry hurry through the plot, you know what I mean? It's it's very it's they don't have the the ability to really, you know, go into deeper details, to have certain subtleties. It's it's got to be, you know, short and succinct. I see the benefit from that, but mm. for me personally, I'm I just enjoy the the TV format more so. Yeah, I mean, we we can agree to disagree. I would argue that the most challenging, you know, the filmmakers will rise to that challenge, but I hear I hear your point. I like movies where you can learn something about yourself or about the world, movies that make you think, movies that have like the mind fuck where you question your, you know, your existence, your reality, which is why you know, I'm going to go through my list in a moment. Um, many of the movies on there are psychological thrillers. Um, so I mentioned the, you know, my movie list many times before. You've seen it. It's made the rounds amongst all my friends. And essentially the last 10 years or so, I've been ranking, rating every movie that I see. It's a pretty rigorous system. Every few months, I, months I kind of move movies up and down since my opinions are always changing. Um, you know, for example, uh, I saw, I mean, uh, you know, pick a movie. I saw um, Rain Man not too long ago. And when I first saw Rain Man, I was like, not that into it. Uh, did you see Rain Man? I have Dustin not seen Hoffman. Rain Man, yeah, you're going to be saying that for a lot of these movies. <laughs> Get used to that, guys. I have not seen. Um, so, Rain Man, great movie. I first saw it, I was like, meh. And then the other day, I was just watching clips on YouTube, and I'm like, you know what? This this deserves to be an N8 instead of a 7.5. So, um, Ian, I want to give you, I want to go through my list, uh, my top 50 movies on my list. Many of these I've referenced in my er- earlier podcast since I'm a fanatical movie fan. So these will be familiar to longtime Nervous Habits listeners. Ian, I'm going to give give uh, give the movies to you in categories of five. So I want you to tell me which of these five um, you've seen and which you haven't. And of the uh, of you know the 50 movies at the end, I want you to tell me if any of these would crack your top 10 list. Um, so without further ado, this is the Ricky Rosen uh, movie rating system, the OG. Uh, number one. The Shawshank Redemption. Number two, The Departed. Number three, The Matrix. Number four, Goodfellas. 
And number five, Schindler's List. Have you seen um, any of those? Shawshank, Departed, Matrix, Goodfellas, and Schindler's List? So I've seen uh, The Departed and Schindler's List. Has not seen the Shawshank not, Redemption. I know, I know. According to IMDb, I think that's the uh, one of the like highest rated films of all time. So you've seen Schindler's List. You got through that tearjerker, and you said you saw The Departed recently. Actually, recently, actually, I know. Surprisingly, I, I haven't seen it, but uh, I remember he until a couple months ago but, came uh, into the kitchen. I was like, holy shit! Um, so that's one to five. Um, the next chunk we have: Shutter Island, Casino, Taxi Driver, The Wolf of Wall Street, and Interstellar. Shutter Island, Casino, Taxi Driver, Wolf of Wall Street, and Interstellar. So I've seen Shutter Island. Uh, I've seen pieces of Taxi Driver. Uh, I've seen The Wolf of Wall Street and Interstellar. So we're, we're getting some more. On this okay, so you've there. seen. It's. I mean, it sounds like you've seen a lot of the modern ones. You're. You guys are gonna hear a, a lot of these films on my list have the same directors. I feel that. Seriously. What was I? I was say Martin Scorsese. Yes, Scorsese. Scorsese. I mean, is is all over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just because I feel that um, you know, if if you like a movie by a particular director, Quentin Tarantino is a great example of that, as well as Wes Anderson. They have specific styles. A lot of the actors are the same in these movies. The writing is usually very crisp and consistent. Um, so you know, that's why a guy like Scorsese. You know, you look at Casino and Goodfellas, both crack my top ten. Those are you know two of the most highly regarded gangster movies ever. Um, and you definitely have you know the same kind of cast the same dialogue um so those are definitely you know among my top uh 10 next chunk here we have a beautiful mind the aviator goodwill hunting the green mile and revolutionary road this is going to be the first oh for five oh for, for five I, I have not seen any of those Ian with the golden sombrero uh interstellar no no i'm not interstellar sorry a beautiful mind the aviator goodwill hunting the green mile revolutionary road so uh, the of this list, I mean, now you're seeing a couple. Uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio um, is on here a couple of times. The Aviator, in particular, that's a biopic about Howard Hughes's life. We talked about mental illness. That's a beautiful depiction of obsessive compulsive disorder um, by DiCaprio. Beautiful mind. You get the the mind fuck. Um, and then Revolutionary Road. I, I highly, highly recommend that. That's with uh, DiCaprio again, and uh, and Kate Winslet. Um, Actually, it's funny. We talked about dating and marriage. That that ties in perfectly. Revolutionary Road is about a picturesque, a seemingly picturesque suburban couple um, who, from the outside of this beautiful, you know, uh, idyllic relationship, but really they're both submerged in, in deep depression, and, and you know they have a toxic relationship. Okay, so, so I highly cool. recommend okay, that. I'll, one. I'll check that one out. Uh, next next grouping here: Pulp Fiction, The King of Comedy, Million Dollar Baby. The Machinist and Jackie Brown. That's uh, 16 to 20 is Pulp Fiction, The King of Comedy, Million Dollar Baby, The Machinist, and Jackie Brown. So I've seen Pulp Fiction. Okay. Part of that one. Obviously. I mean, everybody and their mothers have seen Pulp Fiction. The King of Comedy, that's another um, uh, Scorsese movie with De Niro. Really excellent short um, psychological thriller. How old is that movie? That was, I want to say 1980. Okay. It's about 30... 30 to 40 years old. I'm definitely partial to movies from the 70s and 80s. Um, I like that genre. And The Machinist I saw fairly recently. That's another psychological thriller with Christian Bale. Um, he, he gets completely emaciated. He weighs like 90, yeah, 100 yeah. pounds for that movie. You've probably heard I, I've seen the actual you, I, would, I would imagine, Ian, for most of these, you've heard of the movies. I've heard of these. Could... I know the plot from a lot of these. Um, but again, no, i much more of a TV show guy. So. <laughs> Too busy watching Game of Thrones on repeat to, to see uh, you know Christian Bale with the 
life-altering performance. 21 to 25, guys. We have Reservoir Dogs, Get Out. That's a recent one. Inglorious Bastards, The Dark Knight superhero movie, and Ex Machina. We have Reservoir Dogs, Get Out, Inglorious Bastards, The Dark Knight, and Ex Machina. So I've seen Reservoir Dogs, Get Out, Inglorious Bastards, and The Dark Knight. All right, he's seen everything but Ex Machina. Machina. And interesting enough, you would love... I've definitely recommended it to you. You would love Ex Machina. What's the plot about that? um, So I've definitely mentioned this. I think I mentioned this when I talked to uh, my friend AJ about consciousness. It's about the the Turing test where they have um, uh, a person um, give a test to uh, an, an AI robot to see if it's conscience and the whole movie is is you know this guy falling in love with his robot but the question is you know you're watching you know is the robot actually feeling love or is she manipulating the guy and you're trying to figure out does it have genuine feelings and thoughts so that's ex machina get out obviously was was fantastic um and then you have the tarantino movies here the dark knight i think might be my only superhero movie that makes the top 50 um understandably i mean that's i think that makes everybody's if they have a superhero movie, that'll be on there. Transcends it yeah. for sure. La La Land, uh, twenty six to thirty guys. La La Land, I just mentioned. Um, <laughs> Catch me if you can. Um, Nightcrawler, Green Book, and V for Vendetta. La La Land, Catch me if you can. Nightcrawler, Green Book, and V for Vendetta. So I've, out of that, I've only seen V for Vendetta, but I'm noticing a theme here. I feel like it's either Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> Christian Bale, or <laughs> Ryan Gosling. Oh my God! Hey, look, I you know. I, I'm, I'm a straight dude, but I can have my, uh, my my male actor crushes. Well, um, I feel like in each of these categories, aside from those, you're gonna get at least one psychological thriller. Nightcrawler is actually Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake, okay. So you haven't seen I, that? I've not seen that. All right, I got. So I thought that was Ryan Gosling. No, that I was that was Gyllenhaal. Hall. Um, so I got to make you a list uh, when we go offline. Um, but Nightcrawler uh, again is is really uh, fascinating uh, movie. That's about a a journalist who um, is essentially obsessed with um, being the first person on the scene to video a tragedy. And um, you, you know the culture we have in in reporting where you have to be the first one, the first network, even in like baseball, like first I was here first. So he eventually realizes, and I'm not giving too much away, but he realizes that the best way to be the first one to report a tragedy is to make up your own tragedy. Mm-hmm. So I'll let that kind of sit. So Nightcrawler, Green Book is pretty recent. I right, talked right. about that Oscar a couple winner. episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Oscar winner. Best picture. I called it here, by the way. Um, 31 to 35, guys. We have Kill Bill, Minority Report, Drive, Gone Girl, and Inception. Kill Bill, Minority Report, uh, Drive, Gone Girl, and Inception. Okay, so I've, I've seen Kill Bill. I mean, I guess I've seen a lot of the Tarantino movies. Um, I have seen Gone Girl. I'm kind of surprised Gone Girl is as high on the list. Um, and uh, Inception as well. Um, so Ian has seen like every like basic like <laughs> 17 you know year old girl movie. Uh, it's actually funny as I'm going through this with you, I'm realizing. All of my favorite movies have been referenced on Nervous Habits. Minority Report is all about you. Right. Have, you have, you've seen it. I have not seen it, but I, I remember which episode was it you were discussing about the ability to... Episode 9 girl, right? with Jeremy yeah, yeah, yeah. about pre-crime. And I'm not going to repeat the plot because you guys are, are sick of hearing about this. But, you know, that one I mentioned. Um, the other ones aren't, like, deep. I really like... I'm, you know, I'm partial to movies that have that layer of, you know, interpretation. Uh, in, in, in the next group, there's a great example of that where you can watch it and really think about it and discuss it. Um, which, aside from Westworld, there's not a lot of shows where I feel like you have that. 
next group, 36 to 40. I lied about the superhero movies. We have one more. Uh, the Dark Knight Rises, The Shape of Water, Enemy, Silence of the Lambs, and Gladiator. We have The Dark Knight Rises, The Shape of Water, Enemy, Silence of the Lambs, and Gladiator. Okay, so uh, I actually haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises. Dude. That's the, was it, that's the first one or the third one? That's the third one. Oh, I have seen that. Never mind. I haven't seen... Batman the, Begins. Begins. Yeah, that okay. one was, you know, that's all right. Um, the Shape of Water. I love The Shape of Water. Um, that was a Rick Rack. That's, that, that's exactly, what we call it. Right? Rick, yeah, Rick, Rick, Rick recommended it to me. Um, it was a great movie. Uh, I've seen Silence of the Lambs and Gladiator. Actually, I haven't heard of Enemy. What is, what's the plot? It's that? really funny. So... I just mentioned a moment ago that I'm partial to movies that have different layers of interpretation because whenever I finish a movie, I like to go on Wikipedia. I like to read the plot. This is my OCD. I like to read the plot. I like to you know go on Reddit and read different interpretations. I, I like to watch YouTube videos. Enemy is one of those movies that is all about the mind fuck. Um, so I have to be careful in sharing too much, but it's with Jake Gyllenhaal and it's a psychological – yeah, another Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a psychological thriller. Um, I actually cannot – say more than that because i really think you should see it i discovered it i was in dc um uh seeing adam who was on episode 12 uh last month and we were looking for something to watch on netflix and we just turned it on and it is gripping it is gripping and i definitely if you're into psychological thrillers definitely recommend it shape of water you mentioned uh silence of the lambs is an 8.5 it's my 39th movie a lot of people you know consider that to be among the greatest movies ever made for me 39 feels right. <laughs> I don't think it's in my top 10. Anthony Hopkins was in it. It was great. And I think that was Jodie I mean, Foster, really? I'm not a big fan of, I guess, it's like a horror, horror movie. I thought it was great. I, I, like, I don't know. I, I don't mean, know. It's I one just, of those horror movies that actually transcends like the, the, genre, the common genre. Yeah, I wasn't scared and I wasn't intrigued. Like, it didn't have... I thought it would be a psychological thriller. I thought it would be like Inception where it ends and you just like debate, did the top fall, did the top not fall? But we didn't have that. It just ended and it was like, oh, like Anthony Hopkins, you know, I don't want to give it away. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm spoiled yeah, so much yeah, for you guys. Yeah. All right, next next five, we have 41 to 45. Memento, Blue Valentine, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The Theory of Everything, and Raging Bull. Memento, Blue Valentine, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The Theory of Everything, and Raging Bull. Yeah, nothing, zero? Nothing, yeah, another zero for five. So Memento, if you liked Inception, that was Christopher Nolan's, um, one of his first films. It's about a guy who has anterograde and retrograde amnesia, so he can't remember anything and he can't make new memories. That's an excellent uh, movie. Blue Valentine is similar to Revolutionary Road. That's with Ryan Gosling, actually. <laughs> and um, it's about another like toxic marriage, um, really, uh, re- really visceral Um and then the other few are just Oscar winners, no big deal. Uh, all right, last five here. <clears throat> we have Whiplash, Lincoln, Black Swan, Edge of Tomorrow, Live, Die, Repeat, Wally, Wally, and Arrival. So we have Whip, uh, Raging, excuse me, Whiplash, Lincoln, Black Swan, Edge of Tomorrow, and Tied for 50th, Arrival, and Wally. Okay, so I've seen uh, Wally um, and Arrival. I'm surprised this is the first animated film on the list, huh? Yeah, Wally, that's rated. Okay, that's I, you know what? It's because I think Wally transcends the medium. Just you know, we could spend a whole episode talking about Wally, but like just the commentaries on on Americans and Western culture and how we're all just going to be obese, you know, consumers of media and food in the future, rolling around in wheelchairs in outer space. Um, so Wally definitely earns its spot. And then Black Swan, obviously, is another psychological thriller. You haven't seen that. I have not seen that. 
I know, there's a, there's Dude, a long list. Mila Kunis, reason enough. And then Live, Die, Repeat, we actually have a friend, uh, Dennis, that, that's a Denrec. Um, that's an excellent movie. It's like Groundhog Day with Tom Cruise. <clears throat> repeats the same day over and over again. Um, a couple that didn't make the cut. Uh, see if I want to just pull any out. Uh, Manchester by the Sea. That, that movie was excellent. That is one of the saddest movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I knew it was sad coming into it. But I don't think you can fully appreciate how sad Manchester by the Sea is. Have you seen that? I have not seen that. Oof. All right, I'm just, I'm just going to just – if you've seen it, just just tell me. Fruitvale Station, that's another very dark, dark, dark movie um, that's about police brutality uh, in Oakland. I believe it's Oakland. Um, Rain Man I touched upon. Uh, the Prestige is another Christopher Nolan, Christian Bale <laughs> movie. Mr. Nobody I talked about – I think I talked about it in the episode on Free Will. Um that, that's another deep one. Uh, the Usual Suspects has that uh, incredible mindfuck ending. That's when with Kevin Spacey rip his career. Um, Looper. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, th- the rest are are really not. You know, um, I don't want to to call out, but that's that's my fifty, my top fifty movies. And I do want to repeat just because I feel like I, I blew right through them. I want to repeat my top five because. A lot of time and energy went into this top five. Um, these are my five favorite movies. The Shawshank Redemption, um, a story of, of a man in prison, um, redemption story. That is incredible. If you if you haven't seen it, you should you know watch it tonight. Departed, you've seen. That's an action movie. One of the greatest ensemble casts ever with Matt Damon and Leo DiCaprio and Mark Wahlberg and Jack Nicholson. Um, the Matrix. I mean, The Matrix. Jesus Christ. Ne- next week, we'll be talking about The Matrix for a full two hours because that's that movie... You know, it's not just a, a sci-fi movie that you know created visual effects and bullet time. That movie is like that's 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 us. That's our life. Goodfellas, I talked about, and Schindler's List. Schindler's List is going to make you. Did you cry when you saw? I, I hope did. You that's one of the, the few movies. It's actually we watched it in our, uh, our AP history class in in high school, and I think everybody in the room, cried. yeah, everyone was in tears. That's such a powerful movie. I mean, that's that's. Uh, <laughs> The end scene, and I'm not going to worry about spoiling because that movie's about like 60 years old, 70 years old. The end scene, actually not that old. I think it was 90, I, it was maybe 30 it was years 90s, old. Liam and- yeah, it was like 30 years old. But the end scene where the Jews are liberated and they're all like gathered around Oscar Schindler and they're just like, thank you, Mr. Schindler. And they give him, I think they give him like a tire, tires on it. And he just looks around and they're all gathered around looking at, oh my God, man, I'm getting chills. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other movie that, come to think of it now, didn't, Make make my top five. I might have to end it, edit in. It's called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's with uh, it's a Frank Capra movie. He made It's a Wonderful Life. I have seen that. Actually. Yes, <laughs> it's with Jimmy Stewart, and it's about a like wide eyed uh, man child how he comes to Washington D.C. Uh, as a congressman, and he wants to better the system and you know create opportunity for uh, for boys and create a, bo- a boys camp, and he's just completely blindsided and and you know just caught off guard by the the politics and, and the you know the manipulation the deceit and at one point he he decides to filibuster he reads the entire constitution for like 30 hours um anyway that's that's an incredible an incredible movie too so before i i mention a couple of of uh incredible movies that i don't like but imdb thinks that you should all see are are all of your favorite movies you know, encapsulated on this list, or are there a couple movies that you can think of that, for some reason, one reason or another, I don't have on here? So what jumped out to me really was that uh, you have very few movies that are longer than one movie that have sequels or mm. you know, or trilogies like that. Um, 
I mean, for me, something that I see, actually, I'm looking at a list right now, um, just going through. And you do have them somewhat high on the list. Um, I mean, this, for me, is just a nostalgia thing. Star Wars. I just loved mm. Star Wars growing up. Uh, I can understand in terms of, I guess, you know, quality of dialogue and, you know, human meaning. It doesn't doesn't beat a lot of these movies, but I think as a cultural phenomenon, it does. Um, and just, you know, the nostalgia around that, the... You know how it changed the whole moviescape. I, w- I would move that up in in my list. Um, again, I haven't seen too many of these. I'm a big. I like Tarantino. I've seen on the Tarantino. Sounds films. like you've seen um, those. Yeah. Uh, what else is on this list? I really jumped on. And, and to your point, real quick about about Star Wars, I think it's hard because a lot of the movies on here are like Oscar bait. Essentially, right, right, they're, yeah. they're movies that have these incredible actors and directors that make these you know commentaries on on society, as opposed to just. By the way, I love Star Wars. A movie about you know, you know Luke Skywalker fighting against the evil empire. I mean, it's deeper meanings in these movies than there are. I think for me, movies are a bit like it should be a diversion though, in some ways as well. Yeah. Um. So a couple of a a couple of movies that were not on my list. Some of them I've seen. Some of them I haven't. That I do think you should see before you die. Um. So again, I like to group it group the movies by the directors. So I didn't mention uh, many of Alfred Hitchcock's movies uh, specifically. Rear Window, Psycho, and Vertigo, all three of which I've seen. Um, they're very uh, like period period specific movies, so um, all made in like the '60s, '70s. Um, I, I I was a little bit stylistically impressed by what Hitchcock did and, and his signature touch, but I wasn't really drawn in by the plot or the acting. Um, you've seen Hitchcock's movies? I have. I think I've seen The Birds. Oh, the birds. Okay, that's that's but, another uh, one. Again, I mean, it's a totally different style. I think the reason why people like it so much is that it was revolutionary at the time, and you can really see so many elements of it in today's horror. For sure, horror, yeah. he set. I mean, think about the shower scene in Psycho. Yeah, dude, dude, yeah. Dude. He set the uh, you know the the standard, the precedent there. Kubrick as well, Stanley Kubrick. Um, the the theory behind him is every movie has you know what like two a movie that has two hours of runtime has literally millions of frames fps frames per second um and what stanley kubrick would do is he would review every frame in the in the film before it was submitted um for post-production before it was finalized and if you watch north by northwest that's a fantastic movie or 2001 space odyssey probably his most well known you get to see how um how how much attention to detail how much care uh, Kubrick put into his movies. So definitely North by Northwest um, and uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, I think, belong on that list. Besides Ku- Hitchcock and Kubrick, um, a couple of these classics. Uh, tell me if you've heard of these. We have The Godfather 1 and 2, no. Casablanca, no. Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, and The Sound of Music. Very classical, older movies. But if you, you know, um, there's the American Film Institute, AFI, has the top 100 movies that are submitted to Congress for historical uh, preservation, for having cultural significance. Usually the top 10 are these movies, Godfather uh, 1 and 2, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Sound of Music, and Wizard of Oz. And a lot of people regard Godfather 2 as the greatest movie ever made. I actually, believe it or not, I have not seen any of these movies except for Wizard of Oz and Sound of Music. So... Considering my fondness for Scorsese's gangster movies, um, I should probably see Godfather. You like De Niro as well. I saw De Niro was in a couple of the movies. The other, I think, I think he, he he's he, in Taxi Driver and he's in. Oh no! Ta- ta- oh, oh. Ta- yeah, 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 no, he is, he is. But I guess he was in Godfather too. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, no, no, he was. But you're right. You're right. De Niro and Pacino. Um, have you seen those? I have not seen those. I've seen Casablanca um, and Wizard of Oz. I was frightened of the the flying monkeys that <laughs> haunted me as a child. But yeah, um, we got the cowardly lion over here. But you know, I would say like if you're looking objectively, objectively, what movies should you know people see if they want to you know uh, be pop culturally up to speed? Definitely the movies that I just mentioned. Hitchcock's uh, Rear Window, Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, and maybe Godfather 2 and Gone with the Wind. But subjectively, if you look at my favorites, definitely that top five guys, Shawshank, Departed, Matrix, Goodfellas, Schindler's And Ian just mentioned Taxi Driver. Honestly, if we do this episode in a year or two from now, Taxi Driver might move into my top five because Taxi Driver is a short movie. It's about 90 minutes long. And some say it's the first real psychological thriller. Um, De Niro plays this like psychotic guy who just drives around all day and night in his taxi, doesn't really sleep, and becomes obsessed. All these psychological thrillers have their protagonists obsessed with, um, in his case, pursuing a woman who works for an election campaign and eventually obsessed with assassinating the president. Um, and it has all these these little subtleties in De Niro's performance. Um, so definitely, usually if people, if I talk to people about movies, and make I make recommendations. The first movie I recommend to them is Taxi Driver, just because it's short um, and it's special, given that it's uh, you know from 1977, 78, so it's older. Um, and I've been rambling a lot about movies. Um, anything you want to add? Uh, any you know strong opinions besides Star Wars you have on on films either that I mentioned or didn't mention? Not that I can think of at the moment, but you know what? I'll, I'll send in an email to uh, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com if, I, if anything does come up. And as I mentioned, you know, this list is evolving. I, and I think another, uh, you know, note on movies is rewatchability because most of the movies in my top 50, I've seen two, three, in the case of The Matrix, probably like 15 times. And I think of them, if you can't watch a movie again, like if we go to the bottom, and I'm not going to do this because we have no time, but if I go through my worst movies ever, um, I'll just mention Boyhood. Boy- Boyhood is the only one I'll mention. I like that. I Boyhood was terrible. Boyhood, to me, is one of the most overrated movies of all time. You like Argo? Because be- Argo oh, is pretty low, too. No, 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 it's okay. Because it's such a slog to get through, you know, 18 years of the kid's childhood. Mm-hmm. I-, I cannot rewatch Boyhood. Boyhood is painful to rewatch. Whereas The Matrix? Hell freaking yeah. I'll watch Neo, you know, uh, uh, get shot 10 times and then survive. Like, you know what I'm saying? I think the rewatchability is is key. Um, and just as a last last thing, then I promise we're going to shut up and and you know sum up the episode. The most, in my opinion, the most overrated movies in history. Um, Boyhood, I had at a one point five out of ten. Birdman, Birdman was awful. I don't know how it got nominated for best picture. Birdman, I have as a one out of ten. That was painful to watch. Um, Jesus Christ! Ugh. The Darkest Hour was the Darkest Hour with yeah. Churchill. Yeah. I saw recently with my mom. That that was tough to watch too. So I'm losing my voice here. We're we're, we're coming up on almost two hours. I mean, this is this is transcending. You know, uh, a lot of you know, we've had a, a crazy intense discussion here. Just some takeaways for you all. We talked about languages. Um, the benefits cognitively, socially, in terms of your career of learning new languages, which languages are most, uh, you know, are easiest and most difficult to learn. Um, we talked about strategies on how to learn new languages. Uh, dating was a, a packed discussion on 
the divorce rate and what factors are accounting for the rise of the divorce rate, um, as well as you know gender issues and, and timing um, and the love languages, of course. And then for movies, you know, we talked about what movies people should see. My subjective list, the objective list uh, of you know best directors, and of course, Ian giving some love to Star Wars. Ian, any final takeaways uh, from our uh, long pronounced discussion on these topics? No, I was just going to say, you know, if anybody's uh, still with us <laughs> two hours in, thank you for listening. This has been a, it's been an honor to be on this this podcast. Um, you know, I, I I try to listen to every single episode, and you know, I hope that you know the listeners are are gaining insights just as much as I am whenever I whenever I tune in. That's very sweet. Those are the words of affirmation. Checking checking the box there, Check. and the uh, and and the languages there too. Yeah, Ian. I mean, it's it's a, a pleasure having you on as well. Next week, guys, uh, myself and another distinguished guest will be discussing three compelling topics, exploring first and foremost aging. What exactly is aging, and is there anything we can do to slow the process of aging? Space exploration, how long until we're colonizing Mars, and finally, all about money. Why the Federal Reserve is the most powerful group in the world that you don't even know about, and why the next recession might be just around the corner. Ian, this has been an incredible episode. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, and thank you, by the way, for saying that you listen <laughs> every week uh, as, as a roommate and as a great friend. Deeply appreciate it. Um, to all of you out there, uh, as I've said many, many times in this episode, as Ian said, uh, you know, we explored a lot of topics in this episode. Feel free to uh, send your feedback to nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. If you like the show, feel free to uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or suggest it to a friend. Um, Ian, thanks again for for being with me. Thank you for having me. Um, And to all you out there, stay nervous. Take care.